0: It's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show, coming your way from San Francisco. Our program is supported by listeners, and I'm gratified to name three monthly subscribers today, Grant Gibson, Jeannie Richards, and Mark Liscard. The program is free. The subscription is voluntary, starting as low as $5 a month. Just log on to peterbcollins.com, and over on the right-hand side of the homepage it says you can help. Click there for the various ways. Today you'll hear another installment in the Boiling Frog series, co-hosted with Sabelle Edmonds. Her powerful website is BoilingFrogspost.com. Be sure to check it out. And you're about to hear candid commentary from an American that I have deep respect for. Colleen Rowley, 24 years at the FBI. She was one of the people who blew the whistle on the bungling of the pre-9-11 investigation into the guy called the 20th hijacker, Zacharias Moussaoui. And she hasn't stopped. Today, you'll hear her critical comments about the 9-11 commission. About the Bush administration's torture policies and how it taints prosecutions. About the failure of the Obama administration to investigate and hold accountable lawbreakers from the preceding eight years. The need for whistleblower protection. The ridiculous airport security regimes and what she calls the security surveillance complex. I hope you'll share this interview with a like-minded friend. Just send them the link to peterbcollins.com. And thanks for listening. Welcome to Boiling Frogs. Everybody knows that the days are loaded.
1: Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows. Everybody knows the fight is fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get richer. How it goes, everybody knows.
2: Everybody knows, but do they? NSA's illegal domestic wiretapping, FBI's national security letters, state secrets privilege. USA's 1 million-plus no-fly list, persecution of government whistleblowers, perpetual wars, rendition and torture. Can you feel the water boiling?
0: Welcome to the Boiling Frogs. With Sabelle Edmonds, I'm Peter B. Collins. Today, our guest is Colleen Rowley. She served as an agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation and came to prominence when she, well, I don't know if she uses the whistleblower term. I'll find out in a moment. But she drew attention to the failure of FBI headquarters to pay attention to reports from the Minneapolis Bureau regarding Zacharias Moussaoui. She has a law degree from the University of Iowa, and she served in FBI posts from New York to Jackson, Mississippi, Omaha, Nebraska, and in Minneapolis as well. In 2006, after she had left the Bureau, she ran for Congress. Uh, but did not win that election. Colleen Rowley, welcome to our program today.
1: Well, thanks for having me. You guys are doing a great job.
0: Well, we're doing what we can, and we appreciate your participation today. And first to my comment, I'm always uh, a little bit unsure if uh, people self-identify as a whistleblower uh, because uh, many of them will say, well, I didn't blow the whistle. I was just doing my job.
1: Yeah, and and, uh, it's not quite as bad, a connotation as tattletale but it, it's still not great either you know it's somewhere in the middle so we came up with a better uh term persons of conscience very good and uh of course we're advocating for more uh people in government uh to to uh get a conscience or to um you know the whole country needs of course to get a conscience i think at this point but uh it's a good thing to strive for
0: Indeed. And so many dedicated individuals who do their jobs, who take seriously their commitment to protect uh, our country and our citizens and who report uh, misdeeds, wrongdoing, lawbreaking or various types of uh, malfeasance in the departments where they work, uh, end up tagged as a tattletale, as a whistleblower, when in fact they are people of integrity who have done the honorable thing.
1: Right, that's the that's the government side of it and of course there are corporate whistleblowers too, so they do exist in the private world as well. Um obviously companies that produce faulty, you know, health health uh uh medicines, all kinds of things that uh that people inside that corporation know that's going on. So um we want to encourage whistleblowing. Remember Jeffrey Wigand, the, the famous tobacco insider who, Indeed. who revealed that nicotine was addictive that the tobacco companies was covering up
0: so um well and and that the tobacco companies were intentionally spiking their products to uh enhance the addictive nature of them
1: right and keeping the documents secret that um you know he was the chemist so he so you're you you see this across the board and it's all about truth and integrity and uh Unfortunately, people place loyalty to whatever group, whether it's a corporation or a government agency. Uh, They often put the loyalty over uh, integrity. I think that's the main problem.
0: Colleen Rowley, as we are speaking here in late January, the so-called War on Terror is back in focus as investigations or at least uh, uh, interrogatories are underway on Capitol Hill regarding the uh, foiled attempt on Christmas Day of a, uh, a, a suicide bomber who was on a flight to coming into Detroit and I'd like to ask you just a comment before we get to specific questions on your view of what's happening right now and how it reflects on the policies that were implemented after 9/11 well um, of course I've
1: I've Spoken out about this before, but you need accountability, so you do need an investigation. That's why I spoke out, um, you know, at eight and a half months after 9/11, because there was a, a lot of uh, pressures and, and the thrust was basically to cover up a lot of information. So I think, uh, of course, I can only read what I read in the papers, but if I'm if I read right, they appointed John McLaughlin, the former Assistant CIA Director, to head up. This inquiry, is that right? Does Sibel know? I think it is, but I'm, no, I'm
2: not as up to date as I should be on this.
1: Mm. I, if that's the case, uh, of course he. Uh, and this is what you're always going to find um, is that the the people who are even put in charge of the inquiry, if you study their backgrounds and past, you know, for instance, put let's just say it was George Tenet, who they tapped to now head up a new investigation or inquiry. You can just imagine that the person that they put in charge has their own uh, backgrounds to cover up and their own mistakes. And it's the reason why if you have to start with accountability because you cannot keep the same people doing the same task. So I, I think that uh, John McLaughlin is the person who's been tapped to do this, and he was one of the people who actually misled Colin Powell in that famous presentation to the U.N. about the um, – the uh, biological uh, laboratory labs that they said existed in in uh, in Iraq. Right. Um, so, th- of course, that doesn't bode well at all.
0: Well, and, and, and these types of investigations are um, caged. They are very tightly controlled, as we saw with the nine eleven commission, co chaired by Kane, Hamilton, and Zelikow, and Zelikow was there as the White House minder. To make sure that they didn't stray too far from the established narrative, and didn't ask uh, a whole host of questions that were on the minds of the uh, the so-called Jersey girls, survivors of uh, those who lost their lives on 9/11, and on the minds of many uh, Americans who were simply seeking the truth.
1: Right when in, during the, the Joint Intelligence Committee's inquiry, uh, where I actually wrote the, which is what why I wrote the memo, um, I was minded. Uh, that that interview occurred, and, and the interview of all of the other FBI personnel occurred inside the FBI, and actually right on the floor uh, with the press office. And we had FBI lawyer, uh, and actually a Department of Justice uh, lawyer in the in the interview, and the, and the people who were hired as staffers for the Joint Intelligence Committee. Now this preceded the 9/11 Commission. Right. Uh, the people who were hired were retired FBI. And the, the guy who was put in charge of the, I think there were five staff that were supposed to do the FBI, and the guy that was over them was a 31-year career. He had retired, but he was a lawyer for the FBI, and he had been accused of covering up a prior inquiry for uh, on Waco uh, that John Danforth had done. And so I don't think it was true that he actually had, you know, my opinion was he probably had not covered up. But there were articles, there actually were newspaper articles that he had withheld information from the John Danforth inquiry on Waco. And it's the same person who's now heading up the inquiry on 9/11. And so that was that was the reason when people say, well, why did you put so, much, why did you copy your memo to outside the FBI? And outside the staffers, even these special staffers hired. And I said, well, "Well, the reason was I didn't even know, you know, who you can trust. You have minders in there, and again, you don't know who's who's uh, uh, possibly has a motive to to change or filter or whatever."
2: Absolutely, this is one of the patterns that we get to see over and over and over as whistleblowers. I took one of our whistleblowers from National Security Whistleblowers Coalition. Sandy Gonzalez, who was the SDS level with uh, uh, um, DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency, and uh, when I set up this meeting for him with Senator Grassley and Senator Leahy's staff, we went into that meeting, we sat around the table, uh, we had actually Dr. Weaver with us, and uh, Senator Leahy's staff entered the room with this lady who was acting as a liaison attorney between the Justice Department mm-hmm. and the Congress who happened to be involved with the uh, people in DEA and the Justice Department in El Paso, Texas, uh, which actually completely related to Sandy Gonzalez's case. These the same people he was there to brief the Senate about. <laughs> so actually the Justice Department ended up sending this woman and, and they brought this woman to the meeting saying, well, she was the liaison. And at that point, Sandy Gonzalez from you know, the whistleblower said, I- I- I'm sorry, I can't talk about this here. You may as well just put me in front of the people I'm blowing the whistle on.
1: Yeah, I mean, but if you think about it, um, if there is any kind of incentive or motive to keep the truth from, um, and, and you rarely see situations where everyone is just so willing and forthcoming to say, oh my goodness, we made this terrible mistake and and we will, uh, you know, let's let's have a full debrief. Let's everyone tell the truth about what you did wrong. Uh, because it's usually never one person or even small group. It's usually lo- almost everybody who did something wrong. Right. And, and everybody has a certain motive to, to cover that up or to at least spin or skew it. And, um, and then, of course, if agencies as a whole have that same motive and, and send their, their minders or their people to keep lids on things, uh, I don't know if you guys are watch- hearing this story about Guantanamo, but um there's a there's a man who's written for Vanity Fair, a lawyer uh Scott horton who's written Correct. for Vanity Fair and there's uh guards there were they were sergeants that were actually watching the night of these three supposed suicides and and again now if that's true if the, if these facts are true, that kind of cover up goes back to the Department of Justice, the Department of Defense. And, of course, it would be terribly embarrassing if if the suicides had been worse than that. I mean, it's just embarrassing enough if it's suicides and it was reckless or or they let them happen.
0: Well, I'm glad you raised this, Colleen, because uh, Scott Horton, uh, it's Harper's, by the way, that he he writes for. That's okay. Harper's.org is where you can uh, find the article. And I've uh, had many conversations with Scott. He has been pushing very hard. For the accountability that the Obama administration tells us is unnecessary, the constitutional yeah. values here of uh, investigating and accountability are somehow optional, and uh, I'm deeply offended by that. And Horton has been a strong advocate uh, for using the torture issues as the main thrust of accountability uh, on on the many fronts where it's needed. Uh, related to the Bush administration's uh, expansion of presidential powers, violation of the Constitution, and international treaties and our own uh, uh, federal laws. And the case that you're talking about has yet to receive uh, even an inch of coverage that, that I have found in the corporate media in this country, and it's a very critical issue. As you point out, Three individuals were taken to a, a very um, uh, secretive part of the Guantanamo base, which uh, has earned the nickname Camp No uh, for the idea that uh, if anybody asks that it exists, the answer is no. And these uh, detainees were taken there on a, a given evening, and uh, all three of them expired uh, as they were being subjected to the uh, Rumsfeld-described uh, enhanced interrogation techniques. And the cover story that was offered was that in a, a uh, an infuriating episode of asymmetrical warfare, that these three individuals had taken their own lives by stuffing rags into their mouths and uh, uh, suf- self-suffocating while they were under the scrutiny of one or more uh, CIA interrogators and uh, military guards who were uh, controlling their custody. And the story raised uh, alarm bells with me from the beginning uh, to suggest that they could have committed suicide in this manner. And then it was described as an act of asymmetrical warfare. And uh, I'm, I'm so uh, pleased, uh, maybe that's not the right word, but gratified that Horton has found uh, sources of uh, in, including a guard who observed this from a guard tower, uh, he wasn't privy to went on what went on inside camp. No, but he knows these three individuals were taken there uh, on a specific date, and uh, that when they came back the next morning, they were dead. And so this is the kind of thing that is uh, was covered up by the Bush-Cheney administration, and now we have uh, Obama and his administration complicit in trying to maintain a cover-up, and this certainly uh, fits the description of the limited investigations that Eric Holder has authorized into cases where even the expansive uh, enhanced interrogation techniques that were approved using John Yu's memos as a legal basis and then specifically authorized by Rumsfeld uh, that that uh, somehow this does not rise to the level that demands an investigation i, I 'm at a loss for words
1: yeah I, I think uh, Sibel, of course 's introduction about the the boiling frogs and uh, and when whenever boiling frogs turns to boiled in the past tense <laughs> frogs, we, you know in, in a sense that we 've become so desensitized and the, and the mainstream media is is no longer interested at all. And even a story like this, which has on its surface has all kinds of flags are raised, and again, I think if you would have, if this kind of fact pattern had come out uh, ten years ago, I don't think that uh, I don't. I mean, this would have made uh, front page stories in in all of our mainstream press if it had come out, you know, before 9/11. But as these years have gone by, tick by. I think that you know I don't know what it takes to to uh get the media the underpant bomber <laughs> did uh get major media and maybe that's because they they see this kind of a story that they can actually exploit uh and use that kind of fear now to to whatever they want to do but the other story about you know possibly uh, three people who were killed or 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 at least um uh, um, died as a consequence of being harshly interrogated, to put it euphemistically, uh, at Guantanamo, can't even make a small story in the mainstream news. I mean, that's just incredible.
2: I'm glad you brought up this very, very important point, uh, Colleen, and the fact that people have gotten so desensitized. Because even with the stories that actually do receive coverage, you know, when we were talking about those 2,000 pictures of not being released, they were being held.
1: And, and, and let
0: me let me just reference because uh, people don 't know exactly what day we're talking. This is the day the Supreme Court ruled that corporations have the right to participate directly in political campaigns, equating corporate speech with that of individual speech protected under the first amendment go ahead
1: well, and that would that would be a part of it the corporate corporate speech uh, being uh, in the money that goes into corporate speech, but the mainstream media uh, has uh, been. Way too cozy with uh with all kinds of powerful figures, whether it's a, the corporate powers or whether it's uh, agencies that they cover that they have to maintain uh an, uh social relationships with and can't write anything bad about because otherwise they'll be cut off and I think that's the that's one at least it's one of the root problems right now if they will write about uh stories that are not infotainment type things michael jackson and tiger woods and all you know, those dominate the the media for a long period of time because um uh and then you get a story that's of, of crucial value to uh americans about something and yes maybe for one day or two days you might see something and then it's over and it, at all, if you see it at all so i think the media is a is a huge problem right now and there's ideas. I, I just noticed today, this is uh, something that maybe listeners would be interested in, but there's a, actually a public notice that was put out on January 21st that the FCC is launching an examination of the future of the media. And uh, it's actually a website called Future of Media, and they're seeking comments by people. And it's, you know, they have eight pages of different types of questions that they're asking. And, of course, I think it's it would be a key thing for people to comment, and certainly independent media should comment uh, to the FCC.
0: Colleen, returning to the uh, Christmas Day bomber incident in Detroit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's better. Than, that sounds better than underpant bomber.
0: <laughs> well, and if you can indulge me in a joke, you know, uh, is that a load in your pants or are you trying to blow me up? Uh, <laughs> Uh, What what is infuriating is that we are seeing uh, people trying to apply now, in hindsight, a Jack Bauer approach to law enforcement. And John Brennan, the president's national security advisor, a former high-ranking CIA official who uh, we believe was uh, involved in developing uh, some of the uh, uh, torture policies that were used by the agency and the black sites that were uh, set up around the world, the uh, extraordinary rendition kidnapping uh, that was used in many cases uh, he's now in trouble because he has uh, said, as part of the Maya culpa, the limited hangout uh, route is if I may say so, in, invoking uh, richard nixon 's comments uh, he's saying that well, we should have invoked this uh, high value detainee interrogation process. And what we know is that that process is simply a proposal at this point that they are trying to develop a team, uh, but it does not exist. And it seems that he is speaking to the desire that uh, the first thing we should have done with uh, Abdulmutallab was to torture him, was to take him aside and put aside our laws and even the manner in which Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, was treated by the Bush administration, and that he should be immediately... Uh, uh, you know, pummeled and whatever people imagine should be done to uh, uh, produce intelligence, to force him to speak before he got so-called lawyered up. And I think this presents a whole false notion uh, of what can be extracted from an individual like this who was likely very compartmentalized and uh, has no knowledge of any other uh, potential actions by his uh, his minders uh, and that this creates the illusion that if there is someone who tries to commit such an offense against uh, the citizens of the United States, that we are fully justified in using any means necessary, up to and including sending him to Camp No at Guantanamo uh, to get information. And, And this sense that you can get reliable information through torture is a simple fallacy.
1: Well, I'm really glad you brought up this question uh, because it's my issue. It's, um, it's the issue that I taught FBI agents for 13 years, the law of interrogation, the Fifth and Sixth Amendments uh, restrictions, and how to uh, effectively uh, get statements and confessions for use in court, uh, but do it without coercing the person uh, to exceed their voluntariness, and the reason you do that is that you get voluntary statements and confessions. is not even for a nice reason. It's not for, you know, ethics reasons, although, of course, it's ethical not to torture, and it's ethical uh, to make sure that it's voluntary. But you do it so that you don't commit a fraud on the court, because when you take any kind of uh, statement or confession that was obtained involuntarily, if you exceed that person's threshold, then you are risking so much uh, inaccuracy because people will tell you anything. So that's the reason for, uh, even even for originally the Miranda Rule. If you go back to the history of the Miranda Rule, the thought was that they were torturing or that by putting too much pressure on people at the time, and because they did not videotape uh, confessions, uh, that was why the Miranda rule was was proposed as a prophylactic to prevent involuntary confessions. We you don't hear anyone even talking about the history and why you need these things. Um, besides what you just said, Scott Brown, that senator that was just elected, he made some statements saying waterboarding is a as a technique, and we're not going to give rights to uh, to terrorists is what his his statement was. So you can see that without any accountability, without something like a church committee uh, that we need right now to go back through all this, you know, the last few, you know, sordid you know, years that we've done these things, without ferreting out what's gone on, now we're still dealing with it. I actually got a call from a news, uh, I think it was a magazine, uh, asking me a day or two after um, uh, the, uh, the bomber, the Nigerian bomber was caught, Asking me about how this worked with Musawi, and his you know his interrogation, and was he given Miranda rights and whatever? Because they were trying to make a comparison. So right off the bat, people had this idea that now we have another uh, suspect in custody, and should we go the extra legal way, the way that's outside of the Constitution, the way that, for instance, the CIA would do it, as opposed to the FBI, that's a, that's. A, More concerned about court and it's it's just such a bogus uh, discussion because no one is talking about number one how do you even effectively get accurate uh, statements that are reliable that will hold up in court that's the number one thing if you if you want to get good information whether it's intelligence that you want to use to prevent a uh, ticking time bomb or whether it's a, a good informa- good a statement or a confession, or an actual confession of somebody that you could use in court. The key is accuracy. That's the number one thing. It's got to be accurate because it's of no use if the person was innocent uh, and confessed because you're torturing them or if, or if the person makes up something to tell you or, or you then run around on these false leads because the person is telling you stuff. That's the key thing is accuracy. And guess what? it's not that difficult even with uh hardened criminals serial killers uh uh mafia organized criminals and even with terrorists the fbi had a really good uh, um, interviewer who spoke arabic and he's since retired and he's he's testified to congress now he's written an op-ed in the you need to get him by the way if you can for your
0: show. He's working for Rudy Giuliani. I know. I've <laughs> tried I have tried to reach him and he's oh, working yeah. at Giuliani and Associates. Excuse uh. me.
1: Well, here's the deal. He's he's got integrity, though, even though he's working for <laughs> Rudy Giuliani. And of course, I don't, I wouldn't say that about Rudy Giuliani. I think he's got very little integrity. But Ali Soufan, uh, actually, he's very sympathetic with the CIA people who actually, uh, you know, went with this green light and engaged in waterboarding and whatever. He's very sympathetic with those folks. But he tells the truth. And what he tells the truth about is that he was able, and in prior cases with the coal bombing, with other things, if he was able to develop rapport, he was able to get good information and actually quicker, quicker than anyone who would be doing any other extra legal method. So that's, I think, that's the thing that people get hung up on because if the the discussion out there in people's brains, and a part of this is the mass media and its politics and everything else, is they think there's the nice legal way that's ethical, and those are liberals who believe in, in nice, uh, you know, up in the clouds legal ethical ways. And then there's the real pragmatic, uh, what works, and if you and and what we need for security, and if you think of it as a trade-off uh your security for somebody's ethics, uh you're always gonna go with what works and what will save lives. And as long as that exists in people's heads, this trade off that you're oh well, we gotta give up our Fourth Amendment as Sabelle mentioned before about the wiretapping. Well, my privacy on the phone, what does that matter if my life is protected? You know, if you did a if you do polls and you put it as a trade off to people they're going to give up their privacy on the telephone and on their emails if you if you if you frame it as their security and their lives are being protected. But here's the deal: this is the key thing that you have. It's actually the opposite. What we're doing with this total information awareness by collecting all these trivia and pieces of thousands and, and I shouldn't say thousands, millions of pieces of data is we're making it harder for the FBI to protect citizens in this country. And we're making it harder to get reliable information. Uh, if you had the Ali Soufans and hired people with good language skills, if you had good translators, uh, if the FBI was smart enough to keep its uh, uh, good translators and, and was able to, to uh, use the information that we have, we'd be so much further ahead. Than what we are now with the silly notion uh, of going the extra legal way.
2: Well, actually, this is a, again this is another good point because I have several questions uh, in relation to another agency, and that is the CIA. Because at least with the FBI and with the issues that we just talked about, we are still able to talk about the Constitution and our rights and 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 you know the Miranda rights, sure. But then we are looking at. How do we treat, you know, people outside this country? And there are no rules. And basically the, the, the general attitude is humanize, humanize, you know. Terrorist suspect, what you do? You kidnap. Rendition, torture, murder, no rules whatsoever. And let's talk about that agency and the CIA. Because what you were doing with the FBI, you were training and you were educating them on these rights. Well, what happens in the CIA? What kind of educations do they receive, Colleen, in terms of what they do? I'm not talking about the Constitution. I'm just talking about general human integrity, human rights issues. What do they teach in this agency?
1: You know, I know very little about that. Um, I had bumped up against a couple of uh, CIA folks in the course of um, my work, my 24 years in the FBI, but I never got into what their training uh, consisted of, certainly because they are not bound by the laws of going into court, and they never wanted to to get any any even close to a federal court because they were afraid of, of having to reveal things. Um, so they never had to worry about those, the, like the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments. And I think they did worry about the one thing that they would always have in their heads is what if this becomes public at a later point? Um, with the, with the taping of the waterboarding, I, I uh, kind of wonder why they the idea was that they were going to videotape uh, the, the hundreds of, of waterboarding sessions and then, of course, afterwards think, oh, someone's going to learn about this. We better quickly destroy the tapes. Um, so the, the CIA, because they operate in other countries and they're never looking at this final uh, Of going into a court and having to other people learn uh, this all goes back to secrecy if you have nothing but complete secrecy it's a it's just a green uh, just uh, a green light to the worst of all worlds because there's no there's nothing on a person who's operating in complete secrecy that they will ever you know uh, uh, worry in fact eventually after a period of time It's not a question of of even a conscience. They will not uh, have any um, frame of reference to even compare what they're doing as being right or wrong.
2: Right. And these people, you see, the agency is not committing these. It's not a building. It's not the CIA building in Langley. We are talking about Americans. We are talking about people. We are talking about people we consider human. And they go out there and they kidnap and they torture, and they torture, and they murder, and they assassinate. And there's this another incident that still the mainstream media is not giving it much coverage. Right after the, uh, this uh, Jordanian incident, they went to this particular house, and they took eight children, handcuffed them, and again, there are, there are certain issues that have not been really clarified, but it's basically consistent with what we've been hearing, despite all the secrecy for the past four or five decades when it comes to the CIA. It's not only here. It's about South America. It's about Central mm-hmm. America. It's yeah. all over the Middle East. So it's not only with this so-called war on terror. So it's not the agency. It's not the building. We're talking about Americans. We're talking about people, the operatives. So what kind of people are these people? Are they driven by fear, that's why they keep doing it, because they're forced, because they need that salary? I mean, I'm thinking, first of all, I would never, ever, ever would have applied uh, with this (laughs) to become an operative. But let's say I was gullible enough to do it, and I was given this order to do this, you know, kidnap, torture, first thing I would do, I would just say, all right, fine, fire me, I'm not going to do this. I would get out and blow the whistle. Even if I didn't blow the whistle, I would just quit. Why aren't we seeing tens, if not hundreds, of CIA whistleblowers? Because outside these 150-plus whistleblowers we've got, I've got CIA analysts, great people like Ray McGovern, Melvin mm-hmm. Goodman, sure. But you know what? I'm not hearing from a single CIA operative whistleblower. What kind of people are these people? Have uh, they been dehumanized? The <laughs> brainwashing? What are we talking about, Colleen?
1: The, the one uh, guy who had witnessed, or I, I think he was actually partitioned away from the waterboarding because the CIA actually used contractors. They were smart enough to realize that they didn't want to get personally involved because it would actually hurt uh, the person doing the torture. I mean, uh, that's, that's one of the repercussions. If you're involved in these things, it dehumanizes the person who's, who's doing it as well. So this guy, Kiriyaku was his name. K i r i k o u, uh sounds like a Greek last name. But he, when that, when the tapes, when it was, when it was uh, found out the tapes were destroyed, he went public, and he actually said, yes, we did this, and uh, he kind of tried to explain we thought we had to whatever, and he gave some public interviews. Well, I haven't heard a word. Now they've they've actually had to hire lawyers. Um, the CIA has a different situation than the in the FBI you get represented by the government by a government lawyer or at least a government paid lawyer uh, unless you really are outside the scope of employment and they interpret scope of employment very broadly but apparently in the CIA that doesn't quite exist because people never find out what the CIA does and so they've never really probably considered that they needed to have some kind of legal representation but anyways, this, I think now at this point the ones who uh, were involved, of course, have attorneys, but they are, attorneys aren't, aren't doing too much because there hasn't been any further development of it. I, I, I think the answer to your question is that when you're in an environment where you're told that the ends justify the means, uh, and certainly the people get very proud of the fact that they're working for national security, and if you're allowed to certainly use deceit as part of your uh, what you're doing, that's really a part and parcel of your job, it's really hard to keep that contained. And so if, it's, if it flows over and the deceit becomes greater and you're now, let's say, fooling Americans as opposed to fooling the, the so-called enemy, I mean, people can't keep these things straight. Even in the FBI, now this is a very interesting thing. We had undercover agents of course, you know for instance uh, pretending to buy drugs or or infiltrate the mafia or things like that so we had we had an undercover program, but they found out after a period of time that the agents who were becoming undercovers also had the highest amounts of of personnel um, uh, problems so like misuse, little things like misuse of the government credit card. Of in, in the scheme of things, those are relatively minor, uh, improper, you know, they're, they're wrong, and you probably could even get fired for uh, charging something on your government credit card that you weren't supposed to charge. Well, they found the highest number of these uh, personnel problems and improper actions ag- uh, amongst the undercover agents. Sure. And the reason is they start, they can't, you know, it's hard to draw. Once they're told, well, you can lie, you can pretend you're this, whatever, it's hard for them to draw the line.
2: Well, certainly. And also, though, uh, you're right, because one of my uh, members is Lok Lau. I don't know if you're familiar with his case. He was the undercover uh, Chinese-American agent for six years, and he suffered from a lot of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder-related uh, symptoms And because of that, a lot of things happen, uh, including this example you gave with the credit card abuse. But even with hiring, and and I'm just going to give this one example, you know, the FBI is looking at the background check, you know, the polygraph and your drug use, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, It's interesting because I have three people that I know very closely and two of them used to participate in joint DIA-CIA black ops. And what what he was telling me, and, and this person is a uh, lieutenant colonel, was how we were being selected was very interesting because we had this one group of seven people who committed like the highest level black ops uh, related uh, tasks, given tasks, and and they picked out the files when they were choosing the candidates to train for these black ops of these people who had come from uh, highly abusive, broken homes. Okay, they had uh, pathological lying. Uh, background, which was established, okay, several very, very, very serious personality disorders issues, okay, and this particular person himself has been treated for the past decade for self-mutilation. He's been burning himself in private mm. areas with cigarettes, but this is a lieutenant colonel I'm talking about, Oh, my
1: okay?
2: gosh. Uh, well, these were the types of people they chose for these black operations. These were the kinds of people they hired. So with the FBI, at least it was as part of job, they became that. But it seems like with some of these agencies that we are talking about, these are the types of mindset and the types of people Mm -hmm. they are looking for. And I'm not talking about analysts because, as I said, I've known a lot of good analysts. But I'm talking about those people who serve in these tasks, which brings me to the latest incident with this Jordanian person who blew up himself and killed uh, several CIA agents and two Blackwater contractors. And I believe in war, we are all victims, I, I completely, except for the profiteers. You know, Lockheed Martin is not right. uh, a <laughs> victim, nor is the Northrop Grumman. But outside the profiteers, we are all victims, all of us. The taxpayers, you know, the, the, the civilian casualties, the soldiers, the, our soldiers, we are all victims. In this case, in this particular case, though, it was interesting, and I posted a piece on this on, uh, on my website, on our website, and that has to do with the usage of the word victim, that the mainstream media started attaching to these CIA people and the contractors who got killed. And and then I went and I researched hundreds and thousands of children and grandmothers and the mothers that have been civilian casualties of our wars in Afghanistan and in Pakistan, and not a single article, let's say in Washington Post, that associated the word victim with any of them.
1: Right. <laughs> well.
2: Not uh, one, and I invite all our listeners, listeners, to go and search Washington Post archive. The word "victim" with all the civilian casualties in Afghanistan, not even once in the entire the entire database, not used even once. Yet with this case, these were the victims. I mean, these people were there pushing the buttons for drones, and and they were in combat zone. You know, the so-called combat zone. So, um, I. I have sympathy for the family members, my condolences to them, but I sometimes find it very hard to have sympathy for people who were there performing those types of tasks, which brings us to this point that you made in, in this article in your response when you're talking about U.S. foreign policy that contributes to the increase in the number of potential terrorists. And, and I, you know, we want you to talk about that yeah, because this if... is part of our operations and foreign policy all around the
1: world. Right. I mean, we've uh, done everything wrong since 9-11, pretty much just everything. I, I'm trying to think of an, a single example of something we've done correctly that has helped. Uh, and I can name a whole bunch of things that we've done absolutely wrong that has, uh, if we truly wanted to reduce terrorism, uh, these this would be the worst ways to go about it. And it's hard to, you know, hard to, to even know where to start. But Uh, You don't uh, launch wars on innocent. Anytime you are uh, killing or hurting innocent parties, civilians, all you are doing is ratcheting up uh, the recruiting for the other side. And the, the military knows this. I mean, they've had papers written. Maybe, you know, I'm sure if you went back to Sun Tzu, you could even find papers written on this. But certainly in the last 200 years, there have been academics. They have their war colleges. And they know that it squares the error that in Vietnam, you know, for every one Viet Cong you killed, if you killed civilians, then you increased it fourfold. I mean, they know this. Uh, And so it's pretty amazing that, and I I know Petraeus writes counterinsurgencies, and they try to be more careful so that they minimize the civilian uh, casualties. But uh, now they're talking with this surge. They know, Barry McCaffrey said, that we, we, we... Know that maybe 300 Americans will die per month once this starts, the surge in Afghanistan, and so they also know that this is going to occur. And if Americans are dying, then you can just also imagine the civilians on the other side. And of course, the troops get mad after a while. We've had many. um, We we do peace vigils here, and we've had many uh, young, usually young men that are between their, their first tour and second tour, or second and third tours, have come up to us and talked to us because we stand at, at, at intersections. And you know what a lot of them say? Well, why are we fighting with one hand behind our back? Because they become resentful if they are being so careful that they can't kill civilians. Uh, because then they see it as we're, we're following the rules, but the other side is not. And you can imagine how the Haditha massacres and the other, these other things occur then. Because, and we've had people actually tell us that, who are actually uh, soldiers that have come up and said, you know, if we just could stop with these rules, why do we have these rules of war? We, sh- we should be allowed to do what it takes to win.
0: Colleen, uh, you and Ray McGovern, who we mentioned a few minutes ago, are co-founders of VIPS, that's Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. And uh, Ray included you in a very interesting exchange that originated with uh, a request to McGovern from the PBS NewsHour to talk about some recent events and uh, the CIA and the intelligence community. And people can read the full version at uh, counterpunch.org. There is a shorter version at consortiumnews.com. And uh, you make a remark here that I I want to uh, comment on and then add to. Uh, You say, launching PR wars on terrorism, drugs, crime, poverty misleads the average person into believing that these ills can be totally conquered or eliminated. In reality, even if the experts were so enlightened slash lucky as to make no mistakes and do everything right, it's only possible to reduce the frequency of such adverse things. And you go on, and I want people to read it for themselves. And you may not be aware because uh, this uh, remarkable package I'm about to refer to came from a very unexpected source. In the weekend edition January 9 of the Wall Street Journal, there are two articles uh, on one page. And one is written by Paul Campos, who is a law professor at the University of Colorado. And the other is written by Nate Silver, who is a a younger uh, Internet-based journalist, and the founder of the website five thirty eight dot com and the two of them try to take the events and the hysteria that has surfaced since uh, christmas day and put it in context and put it in a rational frame and let me read just briefly from Campos' commentary unfortunately the politics of cowardice can also make it rational to spend otherwise irrational amounts of resources on further minimizing already minimal risks. Given the current climate of fear, any terrorist incident involving Islamic radicals generates huge social costs, so it may make more economic sense in the short-term to spend X dollars to avoid 10 deaths caused by terrorism than it does to spend X dollars to avoid 1,000 ordinary homicides. Any long-term acceptance of such trade-offs hands terrorists the only real victory they can ever achieve and silver goes on to quantify it and compare the risk of terror uh, uh, airline terror uh, to the other events in our daily lives and when you think about it rationally and when you put it into this context it is comical to see the amounts of money that we have squandered on airport security, mm-hmm. to see the, the rollbacks in personal privacy and constitutional rights that have been justified by so-called Islamic terrorism. And it, it again, it's, it's astounding that this was published in the Wall Street Journal, but not surprising that they buried it in the edition that nobody reads.
1: And it also uh, links with Osama bin Laden's actual... Uh, prediction or hope that he would bankrupt the United States. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what's behind all of this. If you can so destabilize your adversary through fear, uh, a terrorist. What does a terrorist do? But terrorize. And if he is success, he or she is successful in terrorizing. He causes the opponent to do stupid things. It's like you – fear is like the the best tool in the world (laughs) because, you know, I I, uh, think about Barney Fife running around, you know, asking for his bullet. Because you lose your head. You do dumb things. And almost everything we've done since 9-11 has been uh, characterized by – You know, really reckless uh, stupidity. Even now, of course, even the Bush administration says, well, if we did those things we tortured, it was because we were so fearful. They actually, many officials use that now as an excuse. Uh, We we rounded up people after 9-11, those 1,000 immigrants, and they weren't terrorists. But we did it because we were afraid. We didn't know what to do, so we just went out and grabbed people. Had no evidence for any of them. Well, then they did it again with Guantanamo. You know, the, the next year they were doing the same thing again. So, you've had series of, of fear based actions as a result of this uh, attack on 9 11, which it, exactly, if you were a terrorist, you're like laughing that this country is doing these things. You have to, you can't really give credit to the terrorists for having achieved this because I will tell you, I was an insider inside the FBI after 9 11 and all the way up to 2004. And it was not the government insiders who lost their heads. uh the Richard Clarks of the world kept their their heads on uh certainly in our office here we didn't do we we laughed when they proposed the c- color codes. people made jokes about it. We thought it was so dumb so the uh when the when the phones were ringing and people were calling in tips that were specious that had no corroboration and and basically nothing we thought oh of course we're not going to spin our tires on those that didn't make sense you know so it wasn't the people um and I don't I don't think even the people in the country uh lost it quickly what has happened is our leaders for political purposes have have used this in a very deliberate way uh, the the various orange alerts that were put on up into the 2004 election, those were for a purpose. It had nothing to do with saving us or or helping us prevent or reduce terrorism.
0: We are still orange today.
1: I know, I know. But we haven't gone back and f- the Going back and forth is, is even dumber, though. You go back and forth because now everybody forgot what color code we are. But if we were to go back to green and then somebody yanks it back up, the whole thing is you're, what you're doing is you're pulling a chain. It's like you're constantly – and, of course, the, the uh, underwear bomber did that a little bit too. When people uh, start re- forgetting and going back to their daily lives and saying, well, my risk of driving to work today in my car, I might get broadsided by a truck. You know, actually that risk is so much higher than than being uh, hurt or killed by a terrorist. But we, we – we, uh, Uh, take that risk because we got to get to work (laughs) and we've all assumed that risk even though you can you can get killed any old time driving in your car for whatever reason uh and 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 i think it's a very sad thing because everything we've done and again i think the the leadership you know we can't call them leadership but i call them politicians i i always am very careful not to to, to call them leaders because I don't think that they have led. I think that they've been mere politicians using this over and over as a, as a, a bit as a power base and trying to, to uh, use it for whatever advantage it gives you. To, I'm stronger on terrorism than you are, just like the Scott Brown did. It's, it's a we you know how we can ever get back to um, a situation of some sanity is going to just be a real challenge.
2: But, Colleen, sanity is not good for another group that happens to benefit from this a lot. You know, with the Cold War over, I could just hear these military-industrial complex actors just gasping, oh, man, we are done. We are just, what the heck is going to happen to us? And it's revived. And it's their survival. If Cold War could have ended with some walls coming down or a nation-state falling, This one doesn't have any end. We're looking at a perpetual war, endless war, war on terror, global war on terror. I mean, that would be the wet dream for the military-industrial complex. So between the military-industrial complex and what you uh, also suggest, surveillance-security complex, we're looking at some major players here who are the winners. So, yeah, the leaders are using this, and the bureaucrats are fumbling around or maybe even laughing at it, but we've got winners in this, and we have to really take these winners into consideration, shouldn't we?
1: Can you imagine, too, the profiting off of the tragedy and the wars? And and uh, you're absolutely right. I've heard that the security, uh, security surveillance complex is actually growing faster than the military-industrial complex, and it's precisely for that reason cuz you got this uh, irrational fear and you're you're selling now someone's got to talk about all of our violent acts that have occurred uh of course the the uh, Nigerian underpant bomber was prevented but we had Hassan who was not prevented before that. We had a guy who killed the guard at the Holocaust Museum. We had a guy in Knoxville who went in to kill liberals at a Unitarian church. I I think I've counted around 10 to 12, and these, these did make national news of people with these kind of flip-out, violent outbursts that actually would fall under domestic terrorism. So this whole idea of fighting over there to keep, uh, to keep, any terrorist from attacking us is very false because we've had and and of course the abortion doctor made a lot of news killing tiller uh, and um but we've had about ten or twelve of these just in the last couple of years in in pittsburgh, a, a guy uh, shot three shot and killed three Pittsburgh police officers. So this great security uh, uh, surveillance complex, this total information awareness that has, uh, all of our our telephone calls and our our, our emails and our uh, our uh, our energy <laughs> bills. The FBI, of course, is getting uh, uh, travel records, and they can go to about uh, tw- twenty different third parties and and try to get all these records on people. They've gotten hundreds of thousands of records, and they're all been put into a computer. And guess what? What have they prevented? I'd like to know, because they have not prevented. There have been certainly terrorist acts that have been committed in the last two years, and I would suggest that it actually makes it more difficult. Uh, I'd like to hear some of the people like James Bamford and some of your other uh, people who have really studied the NSA, but it seems to me that when you flood any system with information that doesn't have any indicia, of relevancy. That's the thing because in, if you're going back to the old system, you couldn't you couldn't uh, begin an investigation unless it you had to have. I mean, probable cause is one level, but you, at least you had to have reasonable suspicion. So you had to have something to even start. Then and basically to get most types of information through um, through a, a warrant, you had to have probable cause, which is quite a bit of of information. But that meant that your system. Once you did do a search and you had a warrant with probable cause, and yes, you found this and this and that search, and that went into your system afterwards, so that if you ever uh, went and checked your, your indices and your data, then you would pull something out. But now the, the system is, is like uh, it's corrupted because you put in all kinds of extraneous data that never had any relevancy to begin with. And so you're wading through all this clutter, and if you think about names, uh, the common name, it, in the old days in, in the FBI, you couldn't even put a common name in the FBI system. They wouldn't allow you to do it. And the re- their reasons were, no, we don't want names in there that people will have to work, you know, try to figure out 100 John Browns. So if you had John Brown, you had to have a date of birth, you had to have information that identified that particular John Brown. Because you didn't want a system that was worthless afterwards, trash in, trash out. And I think that's one of the problems with total information awareness. Now, these uh, uh, computer gurus uh, sell the security surveillance uh, people that are selling these systems, try to sell it that they have ways, magical ways, that they can somehow weed through all this data and spit out the terrorists. But I don't think that anyone has been able to prove that yet.
2: Well, there's one other uh, effect that comes uh, out of all this. Now, I'd like to know what you think, whether it's intended or is it some kind of a negative externality, and that is the creation of this Orwellian um, population. And it's so very easy to observe it, you know, when you're in the airport and just stand there and watch people going through the checkpoint, the security check, how they bend over and remove their shoes and their belts, and they put it there. And you just see these fixed eyes, it's almost like detached, you know, on autopilot, afraid to even establish eye contact. Oh, I don't want to look the wrong way. I don't want to do the right thing, yeah. wrong thing. Going through that detector, spreading their legs, and their arms open. You know, if you're going to pat me, that's fine. It's like, you know, it's almost, I worked for four years with abused women who, who, the point of learned helplessness, you know, it's like one of the things they did in describing how they put up with some abusive relationship for years after years was I just detached myself as if I weren't there. And I just see that detachment. And when you get this happening in all over the airport, and all it takes is one incident, you know, it's some subway incidents, and you're going to be seeing this in all the train stations and the metro stations. What if next time the terrorists put some bombs in some shopping mall? What are we going to have? Are we going to have these security checkpoints like they have it in Israel, in front of the restaurants and the major malls? What is it? But, but the people, and what is happening to the people? I and mean, we talked about the fact that, yes, they are becoming desensitized, but maybe it goes, maybe, I'm just asking, maybe it goes further. Mm-hmm. They, they become this, you know, what people, some people coined it as the shekels yeah you know we just do it and and how American is that in terms of the Americanism people here we uh kind of prided ourselves with, and that's what we try to celebrate on July fourth every year and the hot dogs, yeah the constitution we are free, and it' you know and and being always or against big government. what happened though to that people, and I know about the fear factor and all, but is this some kind of an unintended negative externality? Or do you think it's kind of a, some kind of a systematic experiment in a way?
1: Well, I, I, all I know is someone sent me the new airport security procedures, and uh, as a joke, and it's, all, it's people all nude going through. <laughs> they had to put black marks on, on the on the photo, and you know uh, that we are going to go through body scanners. I mean, they're they're ordering these body scanners that would actually. Um, who knows what kind of radiation. Oh,
2: Colleen, but you have a choice. You know, you can say you can squeeze me and pat me down mm-hmm. or I go through that. Remember, yeah. you got a choice. <laughs>
1: yeah. So learned helplessness and I think I think you're absolutely on to something there with uh the the population and this this level of control uh that the the the, the neocons of course wanted that level of control internationally. You know, to dominate through military power, so that no one would ever challenge our superiority and and whatever that was that was always believed to be something that they wanted for other you know in a in a worldwide sense. But I think that actually, again, these lines are hard to to separate. So once you you say, well, that's what the United States wants this kind of you know a superiority in the project for the new American century. I think it blows back. And I think that now, uh, especially now, of course, with the n- amount of public anger about the bailouts and the uh, the, uh, the wars and everything else, I think what you're seeing is this same attempted level of control in the country. And if you control large numbers of people, so that you don't have people uh, getting mad, um, you know, about whatever you tell them, if you tell them we're going to spend. Uh, as Obama's going to be doing uh, next week, he's going to say we have to spend $740 billion more, almost another trillion. And I guess, how many people are going to raise their hand and say, I object? <laughs> you know, I'm going to be out in front of the White House next week uh, uh, during the, well, not if it's the White House, the Capitol for Obama's State of the Union, because I'm going with a group of Minnesotans, and we object to that, that $740 billion proposed spending of the military. But I think that that it's exactly right. There's a learned helplessness at this point that people are uh, just feel like they're cheap. Uh, All is a great example. You know, we've got to listen to this uh, voice that's telling us what to do, and we just say, okay, that's what. I guess you're right,
0: Colleen. When you're at the Capitol, perhaps you could visit with the junior senator from Minnesota and uh, express your disappointment with his embrace of Obama's escalation in Afghanistan
1: our senior and our junior senators and we actually are lobbying both of them. They they have breakfasts for their constituents. So, um we're going to those and I'm meeting well, with the, the the representative office that I ran against. That's always very effective. <laughs> uh uh he's a, a war hawk, a huge war hawk. That's why I ran against him. So, I guess we're we're having a visit to his office as well. And Uh, You know, we we have to continue to use our heads on creative ways uh, to keep challenging. Um, It's it's difficult, but I think that this this helplessness is, and I that's why I'm so uh, happy and proud that you guys are doing this uh, this radio or podcast show because I think it does all of these little things are so helpful uh, to to continue to to encourage people to speak up, to write their letters to the editor. Uh, to uh protest publicly yeah,
2: collective um, action
1: and if you and if we made a joke, you know what if what if you get pat down and you just say, "Heck with this, I'm taking my clothes off you know <laughs> <laughs> i'm I'm not gonna do that by the way, but uh you know what It's it's you know people if they get their nerve up, uh certainly it's a completely nonviolent way of protesting, and, and maybe it would make uh finally people you need something to cut through and, and, and reach people and, and say, this is insane what we're doing.
0: Well, there's that national uh, annual, I, I don't know if you'd call it an action, but people who ride the subway with their pants off. And maybe, maybe that's the start of a statement. Um, Colleen, I, I wanted to cite briefly uh, some of the numbers here that Nate Silver published in this article I referenced in the January 9 Wall Street Journal. Overall, terrorist attacks have killed about 5,300 people in the most highly developed nations since the end of the Cold War in 1991, a rate of about 300 per year. The chance of a Westerner being killed by a terrorist is exceedingly low, about one in three million each year, or the same chance an American will be killed by a tornado. And parenthetically, he notes the Department of Homeland Security's budget is 50 times larger than the Weather Service. Nor is it clear that the threat from terrorism is increasing. The years between 2005 and 2009, with 313 fatalities, in fact, represent the second safest period on record since 1970. Now, one of the factors we haven't really touched on here is the way that the corporate media, television in particular, magnifies these issues. And they do it for several reasons. One is to jack up their ratings so that they can make more money off the fear that they project and inject. The other is their presumed, and I have to say presumed, alliance with both the interests of the political, uh, you don't like to use the word leaders, of the of the politicians, and the self-interest, at least on the part of NBC, which is now selling its networks to Comcast. But NBC has been involved in the military-industrial contract, uh, 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 complex for many, many years. And so we have to examine the way Americans are slaves to television for news, slaves to television to think for them, and that they are responding in a lemming-like manner to the, uh, these, these enhanced, uh, uh, hyped uh, uh, reporting uh, on the, 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 the Christmas bomber and other uh, so-called terrorist threats. When, in fact, if we apply rational thinking, these are noteworthy to be reported, but are not worthy of the, the hyped fears that are packaged along with the so-called news.
1: Exactly. Um, and you said 5,000, of course, in Western countries that have died as a result of terrorist attacks. Uh, the number of our American troops who have died... Uh, is over 5,000, so mm-hmm. that's the, almost it, it's a lar- slightly larger figure than what you even cited. And uh, of course, the number of troops that have committed suicide as a result, or are uh, you know uh, you know brain damaged and all kinds of serious uh, whatever, is, is even it's in the thousands, it's in 30, 40,000. I mean, it's much much higher than even the 5,000. And so, uh, what we're doing, of course, and what we Thinking about fighting them over there, whatever. Is we're just uh, we're just doing exactly what uh, terrorists the, the terrorists wanted to do, which was terrorize us and cause us to do stupid things. Um, the, the I listened to, I listened to a lot of uh, of Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and the Fox News. Is that okay to name them by their names? Sure is. Yeah. And, and the reason is you if you want to hear effective propagandizing. Listen to these masters. I mean, Rush Limbaugh is not paid $40 million. I don't know, Mr. Collins, if you're paid $40 million a year for your skills.
0: Not so far. (laughs) Uh,
1: This guy is paid $40 million. And if you listen to him, it's the same old pattern. I've identified five major emotional appeals. And you'll find him using these things almost minute by minute. And the first thing is fear. The second thing is hate. Uh, Greed is the third. The fourth is uh, is false pride, this exceptionalism. And the last is blind loyalty. And I think you can separate out the appeals to five different things. And he literally is hitting those buttons on people every minute. He's going to be hitting those buttons. And they just kind of go in that order. Fear, hate, greed, false pride, blind loyalty. And when you do that to any group of listeners... You're, you're essentially, it's kind of a brainwashing thing. You are turning people, otherwise good people, into monsters because you're, you're giving them this pride and this, this scapegoating. We've had manipula- manipulators throughout history that were able to do that. And I think it's its a horrible uh, situation where, where that we, you know, you can't put freedom of speech, of course, you can't put... Um, restrictions on somebody unless they actually are, you know, speaking, you know, saying, yelling fire in a crowded theater, so, or really hate uh, type things, where you're saying target a group or something. But we ought to, as a public, say we aren't, we, we, we aren't going to fall for that anymore. And I think slowly there are larger numbers of people that are seeing through this, this manipulation, but it's taking a long, long time. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's really bad because our our country is just, I think, still to some extent, you know, there's, there are people that are getting a little bit, seem to be waking up a little bit. And it doesn't, I, the other good thing about, uh, I know Sabelle Edmonds has been very, uh, she's always said this, and she's so right, is that this is not any one political party. Uh, th- these kinds of things transcend the parties. Even though, of course, Rush and Sean Hannity seem to be more right wingers, but but it 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 actually is something that all humans. If you press those buttons—fear, hate, greed—it transcends the parties. And uh, of course, people play politics with them, and they want it. They want to use those things themselves. But I think what we have to do is get smarter, and we have to educate people. You know, if we said, find the propaganda, listen to this. Like when I was in college, we actually had classes on propaganda. And you said, okay, what is, what are they trying to get you to do? Okay, so if you're really listening and you, you really try to dissect what that person is, is trying to get you to do, we need more critical thinkers uh, who simply don't listen to say, yeah, you know, you're, you're getting me to hate this, this group or whatever, so I'm going to go along with it.
0: Colleen, uh, I really appreciate that five-point analysis of the propaganda of Limbaugh and his ilk, and I think that's a, a very important takeaway from this conversation. Thank you for your clarity, your credibility, your honesty, and your integrity. Yes, thank
1: you, Colleen. Thank you, guys, for everything you do. Give me absolute control over every
2: soul and that's anybody That's an order Take the one entry that's left Stouch it up the hole in your culture Give me a bank of burning all. Give me this time Leo Cohen and the future. The future, well, that depends on us. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back soon with more Boiling Frogs interviews.